What amazing, wonderful words they are, right? Is he worthy? We ask. And all of earth and all of creation ask, is he worthy? He is. Well, this morning we continue our series, David, a man after God's own heart, and we up to part 18. The title of this morning's message is Scandalous Grace from 2 Samuel chapter 12 verses 1 to 14. What makes Christianity different from all the other religions of the world? Perhaps you've asked yourself this question or perhaps somebody asked you what's so different about what you believe and what I believe. Well, years ago that very question was discussed at a conference Some of the participants argued that Christianity is unique in teaching that God became man, but someone objected and saying that other religions teach similar doctrines. What about the resurrection? No. It was argued that other faiths believe that the dead rise again as well. The discussion grew heated. And uh, C.S. Lewis, who who was a strong defender of Christianity, came in, he came in late, sat down and asked, what's all the kafafa, what's all the rumpus about? And uh, when he learned that it was a debate about the uniqueness of Christianity, he immediately commented, oh, that's easy. It's grace. It's grace. That is, that is so well put, isn't it? Now, the title this morning, uh, it's, you might consider a little bit unusual, uh, but it's very deliberate because this morning I want us to dig a little bit deeper as we explore grace. And even though we are familiar with the term, we still have a a, a limited understanding of its unique meaning, scriptural meaning, because we we tend to uh, hear what the, the rest of the world and society understands by the word grace. And for this reason, grace has been Abused, it has been misinterpreted, uh, blunted, uh, domesticated and tamed over time. And because of this, it has lost some of its sharp edge, not just in society, but even within the church. Now, in our series on David, last week, Kevin gave us an excellent message with what happened in chapter 11. If, If you haven't Listen to that. I I encourage you and recommend you to go and and see it again. It'll be on on the same media that you're watching this. Now, as king, David had seduced the wife of Uriah, an old friend and warrior. If this were not enough, David compounded the sin by deception, by trickery, manipulation, and ultimately premeditated murder. And this all happened after Bathsheba came to him and told him that she was pregnant with his baby. It's interesting, you know, that in the whole of chapter 11, the name of God, the name of the Lord is not mentioned until the very last verse. And and, and with a very short and poignant direct statement, the author tells us the thing David had done displeased the Lord. That's how chapter 11 ends, verse 27. Now we move to chapter 12. And in this chapter, there is, there is 
time lapse between maybe even a year between the end of chapter 11 and chapter 12. And by all appearances, uh, all seemed okay in, in the palace after Bathsheba moved in with David. But in his grace, God will not allow his servant to remain comfortable in sin. But God will ruthlessly expose it lest his servant settle down in it. This means that King David will have to to face the consequences of his adulterous affair with Bathsheba. God uses Nathan, the very prophet that delivered that amazing promise to David in chapter 7. And Nathan will come into the king's presence because God sent him to deal with the matter. So our first heading this morning, subheading, is Pursuing Grace from verses 1 to 6. And we pick it up from verse 4. A traveller came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveller who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Rather than come in with fire and brimstone, Nathan tells David this heart-wrenching story of a rich man who took advantage of his poor neighbour. The poor man's one possession was a lamb that was like his daughter. And the word in Hebrew is the word bath. This this little lamb was like a daughter to him. And Nathan deliberately used the story of a stolen sheep to confront who? An old shepherd. The lamb was like another bath, Bathsheba. It is a story similar to what David Faced with, remember the story of David and Nabal, who also abused his authority and, and David was so upset he was going to murder the whole household until Abigail stepped in. Stories like this of injustice are, are our world is saturated with injustice, isn't it? And all too often it is repeated in, in the corridors of power as well. And notice how during Nathan's discourse, David's temper flared and he, he vowed before God to punish this person with death and, and a fourfold restitution. Jesus told us that, uh, he told us about those whose eyes light up with somebody else's smaller sins are often blinded to their own larger ones. And Nathan's strategy with David was working. David's defences were down. In chess, if you do play chess, when you're about to take the king, you would say you would call it check. 
Now last week we heard how David, having reached the pinnacle of life, basking in the sunshine of success that God had provided him, living in peace and comfort, slowly, slowly but surely started to lose his spiritual edge and committed the act. And on, as we said, on, on the outside, palace life appeared pretty normal. But on the inside, in his quiet moments, when he was on his own, perhaps when he was trying to sleep at night, in his grace, God was pursuing his servant, David. And, and we read this in Psalm 32, verses 3 to 5. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with fever heat of summer. That's how David describes it. And, and it, it, he describes, David tells us in the psalm exactly what, that he, he knew it was eating him up. He knew what he did was wrong, but he had, he, he, his pride wouldn't let him come forward. He knew what he did was wrong, but he kept silent about it and did not confess his sin. And the result was, was pure hell. You see, sin's momentary pleasures don't seem to be as much fun for the believer as they appear to be to the unbeliever. The reason for that is that God's spirit indwells the believer and sin grieves him and it it, it grieves the spirit and it should also be grieving us. And if this still doesn't draw out a confession, if he's still holding out, then sometimes God has to Let's call it a sledgehammer. He has to use a sledgehammer to wake us up from our spiritual stupor. The way that God did this with David is that he sent the prophet Nathan. Now in verses 7 to 9 we have confronting grace. You would notice that I'm using grace in all the subtitles because it's all a different aspect of grace, isn't it? Confronting grace. Then Nathan said to David... You are the man. And this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And And if all this had been too little, listen to this, I would have given you more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes. You struck down Uriah the Hittite with sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Back to our chess analogy. When the king is cornered with nowhere to run, we call that checkmate, don't we? And this is what 
this is what you are the man, hearing these words, you are the man must have sounded like to David. He had nowhere to run. He was gone. It was match over. Without waiting to, to hear his response, Nathan brings the charges. Listen how God... Listen, listen, David, how God has blessed you in all these years. Like a loving and generous father, he continually blessed you. He gave and gave, and if that wasn't enough, God was going to give you even more. And despite all of this, despite all of this, that he didn't need anything else. Despite all of this, he not only took a man's wife, but he took the man's life as well, his friend, one of his warriors. Now the word despise is, is a strong word. It's even stronger in the, in the original. And it has, it's appeared before in, in, in the book of Samuel 1 and 2. It, it, what it means is to look down with disrespect. We saw how uh, Goliath despised David. That was in 1 Samuel 17. We saw how David's wife, Saul's daughter, Michal, also despised him in her heart. That's chapter 6. So it is devastating to now hear that David himself despised the Lord and his word. That's what Nathan is telling him. Now, part of God's grace, part of God's grace, and we we don't normally think about it this way, but part of God's grace is him informing us of his anger toward our sin. And before you can experience God's grace, you need to be confronted with your sin and its mortal consequences. The Bible tells us, for the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. wonder if you've ever reflected on these words from from a favourite hymn. John Newton said, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear.'" Listen to that. That's quite insightful, isn't it? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. And obviously the following line is, and grace my fear is relief. But you need, you need to be confronted with the fear of God's judgment. And that is grace. Before you can experience the relief that his loving grace brings to us. In verses 10 to 12, disciplining grace. Disciplining grace. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you despise me and took the wife of your eye, the Hittite, to be your own. And this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before the nation, before all of Israel. 
Now, let's remember that David had already pronounced his own condemnation in his response to Nathan's story of the stolen and slaughtered pet lamb. And, and even though what the rich man did was very wrong, very unjust, he was only guilty of rustling. What David did was much, much more serious. Legally, according to the law, David should have died, both for his adultery and for the murder of Uriah. David had no hope. He was a goner. He was doubly condemned, both by the law and by his own judgment. And, and, and the punishment, the judgment he will receive will correspond at one level with the crime. The Lord will take David's wives just as he had taken Bathsheba. And unlike his secret sin, this act will be exposed before all of Israel. And, and just as God promised to, to bless his house in, in, chapter, in chapter 7, remember that? Now he will bring calamity on his family. And, and as you read, as you read the rest of 2 Samuel, it is just a, a sad story of how David's family, his, his house was deeply troubled by violence and incest and, and just rebelliousness from his kids for generations, and not just during his life, but for generations to come as well. But remember this. He was disciplined, yes. He suffered the consequences, yes. But he was never rejected. He would still remain blessed by God, a man after God's own heart. And that's the bit that's hard to understand, isn't it? Costly grace. Costly grace. In verses 13 to 14. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have shown utter contempt for the Lord, the son born to you will die. The first thing we want to say is, let's look at at David's confession and repentance. When David realised what he had done, he confesses his sin, not before. So we, we should be slow to, to give him too much credit because his confession only follows shortly after Nathan's confrontation and not before. Psalm 51 gives us some insight into God's work in, in, in David's heart during this time, in, in Psalm 51, verses 3 and 4. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right, you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. God is right. He's always right. David had sinned against his wife, or he had more than one against his wives, 
He had sinned against Uriah, his friend, Bathsheba, his wife, his family, his nation. But ultimately, ultimately, all sin was against God. And he had no one to blame but himself. He doesn't, sh- and he doesn't try and shift the blame to Bathsheba because she was having a, a bath without any clothes on. David doesn't blame it on his family and his troubled childhood, you know, when they looked down on him because the, he was the young little twerp, you know. David doesn't cite the, his past, you know. I used to be always hiding, living in caves, you know. It was a tough upbringing and you know, always running, chased by Saul. And now he doesn't blame the pressures of running the country and all the stress and all this war effort, he had, he had no excuses. No, what David says to Nathan is, I have sinned against God. Straight to the point. I think in the original is only two words. I deserve to be held accountable. It was my sin. Yeah. Needless to say, our society really struggles with this, doesn't it? Don't admit, even the insurance companies tell you, if you have an accident, don't admit your fault, you know. Um, Deny everything. Uh, Why take responsibility for our actions when there is always somebody else we can blame? At the very least, come up, you know, with your lawyer, with, with, with some mitigating circumstances to gain some leniency from the judge. Now, repentance is not feeling sorry for what, you know, because we were caught. Repentance is not simply making statements or temporary changes in our lifestyle because it is expedient and it's acceptable. This is not true repentance. Remember what Billy Graham used to say. He's, he would say repentance is a 180 degree turn. You are walking in one way and you, you turn around and you start walking the other. And repentance is never easy or enjoyable because it involves deep changes, intense soul searching. Uh, preacher, the preacher Stuart Briscoe differentiates, makes a dis- distinction in, in repentance between false repentance and real repentance. And this is what he says. He says, baby repentance is sorry for what it has done. For what it has done. Adult repentance is regretful for what it is. If I am merely sorry for what I have done, I will go out and do it again. But David manifested adult repentance. He saw his sin for what it was. And he was genuinely regretful. As a result, he was a changed man. He never repeated the sin. The other part from these verses is is the assurance that that David receives. What, What David did not ask for, he received. 
And, and, and just listening to those words, what, what a wave of relief he must have he must, he must have swept over him as he heard these words from Nathan. And this is what Nathan said to him. He said, the Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Now, this is, this is one of those marvellous statements in Scripture, isn't it? David's salvation from divine condemnation, like ours, did not come from Good behaviour from law keeping, it came by grace. And the reason David's sin could be forgiven was because the Lord had taken it away. In Psalm 51, verses 1 and 2, this is how the psalm starts. He talks about it being blotting it out, uh, washing away, cleansing. These, these are all the words that are the same expression as taking it away. This is what it says. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. Now this taking away of sin is not some magic trick, right? Let's get that right. Because God... God doesn't simply take David's sin and and makes it disappear. Nothing happened. It has been taken away. Another word used in Scripture is covered. Covered the sin. And here is the scandal of the grace of God. How is it possible, indeed, How is it just or how is it right for God to put away David's sin? Where is the justice in that? We can't pretend that what he did was harmless. People died. And yet God, who has seen it all, says he will put it away. At the very least, this means that the Lord will not hold David's sin against him. But there's also the consequences. Number three, the consequences. Receiving forgiveness does not negate the consequences for our sins. David's sin was forgiven, but he does not walk away without suffering its consequences. Indeed, the the terrible things pronounced in in verse 10 will happen, as we have said in in, in due course. But unlike Saul, the previous king, the Lord will never reject David. God was not going back on his promise of forgiveness. But he was warning the entire covenant community of Israel that not even the king can sin without consequences. Sadly, sadly, the most terrible consequences of David's crime would fall on the son who had been born out of adultery. Now, we need to slow down right here and, and, and say that no one should be untroubled by this pronouncement, by this judgment of God. It, it should actually 
jolt our sensibilities and, and make us all very uncomfortable. How terrible that David's wickedness should be responsible for the death of a child. God forgives the guilt of sin, but inflicts the consequences of sin on another. For David, God's forgiveness was both marvellous but and also costly, because the child would die. It is as if the child will die in David's place. Just as David himself had judged Nathan's rich man, in verse 5, a death would indeed occur. And this is the paradox of forgiveness because it is both free and costly at the same time. And I don't think I'm stretching the point too far when I say that it is disturbing and scandalous to think that David's physical son would become his substitute. Think about that. It is even more incredible to think that another promised son of David, perfect in every way, became your substitute and mine. We call this propitiation. Paul said, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Meditate on those words, right? Don't don't ever take these words lightly. Our salvation is free only because the price has been paid for us. Our sins are forgiven because Jesus himself paid the price. Our sins are forgiven because the Father gave the Son for us. The blood of our Saviour paid the debt that we could never pay. Yes, yes, we might still face the consequences for our actions here on earth. And because of this, we don't have the option to live carelessly without thought for the consequences of our sins. People will get hurt. We will get hurt. More than the consequences, what we don't want to do is despise our relationship with the Lord and his word. We need to take it seriously. We don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit who is within us. The reception of grace does not mean that we are allowed a free ticket to to sin. It cost our Saviour too much to live this way. Only when we understand the seriousness of sin are we ready to wonder at God's scandalous, amazing, wonderful grace. Amen.